You're listening to West Coast Water Justice, where we talk about water in the Western United States. I'm your host, Natalie Kilmer. And in this episode, we hear from Laurel Firestone, a member of the State Water Resources Control Board. We learn about the board and some of its programs, and we hear about their ongoing work to ensure that every person in the state has a right to clean, safe, and affordable drinking water, and how far we still have to go to meet this goal of California's human right to water. Well, thanks for joining us, Laurel. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at the State Water Resources Control Board? Yeah, my name's Laurel Firestone, and I'm a member of the State Water Resources Control Board. Prior to joining the board, I have really spent my career working primarily with communities in the San Joaquin Valley around access to safe, clean, and affordable drinking water. I am an attorney and after law school, moved down to the San Joaquin Valley and ended up co-founding an environmental justice organization with a woman named Susanna Deanda, who's an amazing organizer. And we have been working with communities without access to safe drinking water, many of whom haven't had access to safe drinking water for well over a decade. You know, kind of community lawyering, organizing, did a lot of work on local solutions. This was primarily in Tulare County down in the southern San Joaquin Valley and did a lot of advocacy both with the regional board and actually at the state board, the legislature. And one of the things we were really involved in was passage of the Human Right to Water Act back in 2012. And then since then have been really focused on how to make that real, how to ensure that we can actually realize the human right to water here in California. So I had a lot of experience both on the ground and in advocacy. And when this governor came into office, one of his very top priorities was ensuring access to safe, clean, affordable drinking water for all. He actually brought his cabinet to a community down in the San Joaquin Valley without safe drinking water in their very first week to get a very real sense of what reality is like and highlight the importance that that it is and was already coming in. So when he he appointed me, I think, with that in mind, and it was at a time when the state, this administration and the legislature were finally establishing a pretty major funding source that could be focused on access to safe, clean, affordable drinking water and human right to water. And I've been on the board about three years now. The governor appoints all the water board members, there's five of us, and then we have to be confirmed by the Senate and we have four-year terms and we can get reappointed or we could not. I'm now into my last year of my term. Thanks for sharing about your background. And you're on the main board or is it a regional board? I'm on the main state water board and we are full-time at the state water board in part because we have a very large array and portfolio. The regional boards are also appointed and confirmed by the legislature. They also have four-year terms, but they are not full-time positions. You really just get a stipend for the meetings, which there's usually about six to eight a year. And those boards are set forth in each region. So there's nine different regions, hydrologic regions. Each has its own regional board. There's seven members on each board. And those are really focused on water quality protection and issue the permits, really localized plans around water quality protection. And then the state board is both an appellate body for the actions that the regional boards take but also has a huge array of other additional pieces of responsibility. So we not only do water quality protection policies, 
water quality cleanup policies and enforcement, but also drinking water regulations, water rights administration. We're the largest funder of water infrastructure in the state, primarily for drinking water and wastewater systems, infrastructure, recycling projects, and groundwater cleanup. So we issue billions in grants and loans annually. And we also have responsibilities around things like water quality monitoring, wetlands protection, ocean protection, contaminated site cleanup, stormwater, wastewater treatment. There's a huge, huge portfolio of responsibilities. Wow, billions of dollars annually. So there's these regional boards and then there's the main state board. Can you tell us a little more about the structure? Yeah. So we have five state board members and then we have about 2,500 employees across the water boards. We have, again, these regional boards that have employees. We have employees in each of these divisions like drinking water and division of financial assistance, water rights, water quality. And drinking water also has regional offices across the state. It's really only recently that drinking water was brought over into and as part of the state water board prior to, I think, 2013. It was at the Department of Public Health. And before I was on the board was part of efforts to bring it in so that we have one agency that's focused on water quality and supply from you know its source all the way to the tap. And we can see that holistically. That has been a really big benefit. It's still, I would say, not fully integrated because it takes some time, but I think it's resulted in some real integration and improvements across the different divisions that we have. How do you all get that data to know that the water's healthy for us to drink? So for drinking water, every water system that serves 25 people or more year-round is regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And as part of that, they have to monitor for a list of contaminants regularly that, you know, specifics depends on the contaminants. They have to do that through a certified lab. And then those results go into our database. Our regulatory program oversees that. And they have to issue a report to their customers annually that provides that information and and water quality as well. And then for things like water quality overall, like surface water quality or groundwater quality, there's a number of different sources, but we do and, and have done a lot of work really trying to pull together all the different monitoring sources, which could include our own monitoring, but also things like we require the dischargers that are discharging into rivers and streams to monitor groundwater. We will pull in data from different studies or community-based monitoring that meets QAQC requirements and is able to get into our database. So we really try and pull together every piece of data that's available into one database. And then we will use that to both make it available to the public, but also to help us kind of evaluate and develop priority areas, plans to set limits and improve, I would say, over time, the permit requirements that we have on dischargers. It sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces on how you all are keeping our drinking water safe. Yeah, there's a lot of different pieces. One piece is trying to protect the source of our drinking water. So especially in the San Joaquin Valley, most of our drinking water comes from groundwater. And historically, there wasn't a lot of protections and regulation to protect groundwater. It's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so we saw we continue to see increasing contamination levels. So one part of what we need to do to protect drinking water is to protect that source water. 
then that source water goes into drinking water systems that do treatment, that convey it to households, different kinds of treatment depending on what chemicals or bacteria are present. So we have standards both around what kind of treatment they need to do, as well as what the quality of water is that they need to meet. And there's a huge number of contaminants that they need to monitor for and protect against. And we set what those standards are for each of those contaminants. And then there's requirements around, you know, operating those systems. And then ultimately that goes into households. There are risks once it goes into households and things that we don't regulate. So for example, if there are lead fixtures in a household, once it goes into the household, the state doesn't regulate or look at what kind of fixtures are in a home. So it could be that there's areas or ways that contaminants could get in once it leaves the drinking water system and goes into your home. But by and large, in the state, we have incredibly safe drinking water. It's very highly regulated. A huge amount of resources go into ensuring that's the case. But what my career has really focused on is that that isn't true for all communities. And, you know, it's primarily low-income communities, communities of color that lack access to safe drinking water. In fact, race is the biggest predictor for lack of access to safe and affordable drinking water. And we have about 400 communities that are unable to reliably provide safe drinking water on an ongoing basis. So, you know, while the vast, vast majority, especially with large systems, large urban areas have, you know, highly regulated safe drinking water, there are many systems, especially really small ones that can't and don't have that for a variety of reasons, often because there's contaminants in the groundwater that they can't afford to treat for. And in addition to those 400 systems, we estimate there's over 500 that are at really high risk of failing. So we now have a good assessment of where there's areas in need and at risk, which is really significant. When I first started, we couldn't even get a list of which systems didn't have safe drinking water in our own county. And now we have a really robust kind of data-driven and regularly updated and accessible dashboard of where there are systems that both are failing, why they're failing, and then those that are really high risk, why they're at high risk, and then also where all of them are in terms of funding and getting solutions in place. And the other piece is the approximately million Californians that are not on regulated water systems. So those are households that are reliant on a domestic well, for example. And that's really the most vulnerable. You know, it's really up to that homeowner to do water quality testing. Often people don't know what water quality testing they should be testing for. You have to actually know which contaminants to look for in order to to do sampling to see if they're there. And so there's the least amount of understanding and data on those needs. We do now have an analysis of where there are households that are on domestic wells and what the contaminants are that are most likely at high risk there. So that is also something we now have available and kind of interactive tools around in our website and and through our SAFER program, which I can talk about soon. But there's also a challenge with those because they are usually much shallower than large community wells and certainly more than than large agricultural wells. And so they're both more susceptible to contaminants, but also to water supply problems. So we see domestic wells are really the first ones that are going dry in a drought or in areas where groundwater levels are dropping. So really those areas on domestic wells are the most vulnerable. Just to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, there's about a million people on unregulated personal wells, and then there's about 400 communities that are 
either at really high risk or already don't have potentially safe drinking water. And then another 500 communities at really high risk. Yeah. So there's close to 3,000 community water systems that are regulated. Of those, there's 400 that are unable to meet basic standards. We call that the human right to water list. 400 that are already failing to meet the human right to water. They can't provide safe drinking water reliably and affordably to their customers. In addition to those 400 systems, there's 500 systems and communities that are really high risk, like one bad day away from being unable to provide safe drinking water. That's more than a million people. On domestic wells, while we have about a million people statewide on domestic wells, through the analysis we've done around groundwater quality, we estimate it's more like 80 to 90,000 that are at high risk of having contaminated groundwater that they rely on. Now, some could be treating that water themselves. There are treatments both, you know, under the sink and for the household that can treat certain contaminants, things like arsenic and nitrate. You can have filters that can protect you from that if you're on a domestic well. But again, you'd have to do the sampling to know what the water contaminants are and then ensure that you're getting treatment that is appropriate and effective for that contaminant. So from our standpoint and just thinking statewide, we're estimating that close to 90,000 households are at high risk, if not already experiencing a lack of safe and reliable water into their households. So say if I lived in one of those areas, how would I even know to start researching this? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard. I think often people are really busy and they don't think about it much and there aren't super easy resources. We've definitely tried. So we have a website where you can look up water quality, you know, high risk contaminants in your area. And that could tell you what to test for. And we have information on how to use a certified laboratory to do that testing. There's also information around what filters are certified to treat for any contaminants that show up. But I would say lack of information for for a typical person that doesn't know to go search for those websites, which is why we're really concerned about that vulnerability. There are some recent programs that are offering free testing and they're kind of proactively going out to households that are at high risk for things like nitrates or areas that are at high risk of dry wells to help do monitoring. We have nonprofits going out and doing that in the San Joaquin Valley. So that is something where we've made a lot of progress in that region. There really aren't the same programs in most of California. So this year, as we're seeing drought hit a lot of areas, it hasn't as much before up in more Northern California. There's just aren't the same resources and services kind of widespread that are available. And that's something that we've been trying to work with counties on to see if they can start up programs that we could fund that would help support private well owners. But I also would say, you know, that's a reason we are really working to try to provide advice to counties on how to avoid permitting more housing that is reliant on private wells, as well as not permitting housing that is reliant on a very small water source. So you might have a community that has its own water system, for example, that just relies on a single well. It's really not sustainable or viable in our kind of new normal hydrology and increasing contamination. So a big focus of ours is trying to both consolidate and build economies of scale and sort of redundancies and resiliency and supplies for regulated community systems and connecting in households that are on private wells to nearby public water systems where there are nearby systems so that they're not on their own. 
but also trying to prevent more of that kind of development. And that's really the county that makes those land use decisions. And we end up then being the ones that have to figure out how to provide oversight and then assistance once those are set up. So it's something that we remain concerned about and we have some ability to at least advise on it, but it's really not in our control. Is there somewhere we can go to find out if we're in a safe or a high-risk area? So we have a really great website. There's been huge resources put into access to safe drinking water. And we we created a program called SAFER, which stands for Safe and Affordable Funding for Equity and Resilience. And its goal is to ultimately provide safe drinking water for every Californian, every community. We started in 2019, so about three years almost of work around this program. It brings together a lot of different programs, but it came together around creation of a new funding source that was intended to kind of fill the gaps in the other funding programs. So it was about $1.3 billion over 10 years. We typically will have, like I said, we'll have billions in infrastructure funding for drinking water and wastewater, but often are seeing that funding passing by those communities that need it most. And so that's why you have communities that, you know, go a decade or more without access to safe drinking water. And typically those communities don't have access to engineers and consulting firms to do the planning and design to develop what the treatment plan looks like. And then even if they did, they may not be able to afford on their own the operations and maintenance to run those systems. So a big focus of this program was really filling those gaps, focusing on proactively identifying where there's communities that are failing and at risk, being able to proactively provide them technical assistance and planning, and then be able to leverage the other infrastructure funding to build those projects that they need hopefully as much as possible, connecting small communities to other communities so they're not on their own. We have a really effective dashboard. You can go to our website. It's waterboards.ca.gov backslash safer. And it has, again, these different tools to look up what contaminants may be in your area if you're on a private well, and also water quality in your water system, which communities are failing, what the risk factors are for each community, and also, like I said, where they are in terms of developing solutions and and funding. Yeah, I checked out my area on the Safer website and it looked like there's low nitrates. But say if something looked really off, what would a person then want to do? Yeah, The average person is on a regulated water system and they should be getting a annual report in the mail. If they get a water bill, they get an annual report sent that summarizes their water quality. And again, that really in almost all cases is meeting standards. But in these 400 communities, that's not the case. And if you are in a system that isn't meeting standards, that's regulated, you will be getting a notice saying what the contaminant is and what you should be doing to protect yourself. If you're in a private well community, you know, you're not in a regulated system. Again, that's where both looking on our website for a list of high-risk contaminants, but also reaching out to maybe certified laboratories in your area to find out what they recommend in terms of water quality testing, bacteria and nitrates are sort of the two most typical. In certain areas, you may have arsenic risk, you may have uranium. In certain areas like the foothills, there are particular contaminants. In other areas like the valley floor, there's other contaminants. So it really depends on where you live, what is high risk. And usually you can order a certified lab testing sample and they'll come out, test your well, and give you the results. So the SAFER program is basically a resource for residents to be more informed. 
Well, really, the safer program is us trying to reverse our really racist, systemically racist policies that have resulted in race being the biggest predictor for not having access to safe drinking water. And so to change that and ensure that everyone has access to safe drinking water, it takes us being really proactive as government to make sure that we are providing resources, supporting communities to develop solutions, and really investing in those areas that have been systematically burdened with layers of pollution, with lack of investment, exclusion and land theft that results in inadequate infrastructure and lack of access to more reliable and and cheaper water sources. What we see now is that disproportionately communities of color are having to pay the highest water rates or are stuck without safe, clean, reliable water at all. And that's certainly not true for the majority of Californians, but communities of color are far more likely to be experiencing that. And that's really true in all regions of California, not just rural regions of the San Joaquin Valley, but also urban areas. We see that in places like Southeast LA, where, you know, they've had brown water coming out of their tap. And so we see these disparities throughout California. And really what SAFER is trying to do is say, you know, waiting for communities to come to us to address these problems or sort of papering over the fact that there are any communities without safe drinking water because we're focused on statistics about how the vast majority have safe drinking water. Instead, we need to focus on those that have been left out and really center our work on reversing and addressing what really has been and continues to be systematic racist systems that mean that race is a predictor of the outcome and the services that you receive. Thanks for going into that. So SAFER's kind of how the state water board is equally in the playing field for underserved communities in California? Yeah, at least for drinking water, I think it's really a model for how we can equal the playing field. It's putting in resources, it's helping to lift up data and kind of make those needs and disparities visible so that we can be targeting resources, providing technical assistance. And then I think another key piece of it is we have an advisory group that's made up mostly of community residents in impacted communities, but also local water agencies and technical assistance providers, counties, tribal representatives, all helping to provide advice on how that program is being implemented, how we're investing those funds. And then we have a very clear, transparent, annually updated fund expenditure plan for how funds are targeted, where there's need, and kind of updated performance of how are things going? Are we seeing the results that we need to see? So I think it's really a model for how we can equal the playing field and and really address and ultimately achieve racial equity and the human right to water in this state. You know, it's certainly farther along than some other areas. So we haven't been able to do this to the same extent for wastewater, for example. We're just now starting to look at where there's needs for access to sanitation. There's a lot of areas where I think as we look at leveling the playing field and achieving racial equity, we still have a long way to go. I'm really personally energized by and proud of what we're doing in SAFER, really as something that I hope can be a model for us to do in other areas as well. Yeah, that's great to hear about the progress on SAFER. I know the State Water Board has really stringent rules about discharge, but how is wastewater different than discharge? We do regulate dischargers. So we regulate wastewater treatment plants that are treating wastewater and then discharging it into either surface water, rivers and streams, or the ocean, or groundwater. We have very stringent regulations for what that treatment needs to be. 
But we don't have a needs assessment to identify where are there areas that don't have adequate wastewater treatment in the state. So for example, a community I worked with down in Tulare County, there was sort of a community septic system combined with a sewer. And whenever it rained, the sewer would overflow into people's homes and into the streets and, you know, really significant and unacceptable public health. And, you know, what I would say is, is part of the human right to water, access to adequate sanitation. And we don't yet have a great assessment of that throughout the state. It's something that we are just starting now. So we are starting a needs assessment around access to adequate sanitation and wastewater, but we're not as far along, I would say, in that as drinking water. Okay. Thanks for clarifying. And there are a lot of those combined systems like San Francisco. There's a lot of different kinds of combined systems. There's combined sewer and stormwater overflow. There's combined septic and sewer systems in more rural areas. There's a lot of different kinds, and there's a pretty complex regulatory program for each of them. We also have, with this new Federal Infrastructure Act, we have even more funding than we've ever had for upgrades to those facilities because a lot of them are, at this point, very old. We're seeing leaks and breaks, and you've probably heard of some of the failures that resulted in raw sewage going out into the ocean or into some canals going through parts of LA, you know, even in in these large cities in our state that we would think have really sophisticated and robust wastewater systems, a lot of that infrastructure is now really old. So we are excited to have some more money to invest in the upgrades that are needed, but also try to ultimately transfer those systems into even more advanced treatment that allows for recycled water use that can really augment the supply that we need in the state and make us a little more resilient to droughts and more efficient in our use of of water resources. You know, certainly if wastewater is otherwise just going to the ocean, we need to be looking at, and in many areas they already are, treating that to really high standards and then putting it back into the environment and allowing that to ultimately be augmenting the source of drinking water that we rely on. Does that mean that the wastewater could be available to us in the future as a drinking water resource? No, so we don't yet have direct potable reuse. We don't yet allow wastewater systems to treat water to drinking water standards. That's not allowed in California yet. I say yet because we have been going through and continue to go through this really rigorous kind of scientific process to identify what would be required to allow that to happen and still be protective of human health. I think we ultimately will get there, but that's not allowed yet. And we haven't figured out what needs to be in place to allow that to happen. Instead, what's happening right now is is kind of two things. Either it's treated to high standards and then used for, you've probably heard of purple pipe maybe, but it's used for things like irrigation and systems that are not intermingled with drinking water. So you can use it, you know, instead of using highly treated and expensive drinking water to water golf courses. (laughs) A lot of them are now using treated wastewater that also meets really high standards, but isn't as expensive and allows for an added water supply to meet those needs. There's also programs where they're treating wastewater really high standards and then using that to recharge groundwater, for example. It goes into the groundwater and then later is pumped up by drinking water systems treated and then goes into the drinking water system. So right now it's very indirect, but we are also looking at ways that ultimately we may get to direct potable reuse. That's exciting. I know some people are scared about it, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's good reason to be concerned and 
we should be, and, and we are taking that very seriously and looking at what would need to be in place for that to be safe. You know, on the other hand, to some degree, that's already happening. It's just less direct. So we're already putting chemicals and wastewater into groundwater or surface water. And then those are the same sources that we use to pump into our drinking water systems. And we do treat that water. But, you know, there are new contaminants that we're finding all the time. So, for example, you all may have heard of PFAS, which is people talk about kind of a forever chemical. It's a a chemical that we're starting to see all over it's found in in a lot of groundwater especially near places like landfills and airports places that have used firefighting foam it's in a lot of consumer products like waterproof clothing and teflon and <laughs> you know it's in a lot of consumer products that then go into our landfills and those chemicals ultimately end up in our groundwater. And for many of those, what we would call emerging contaminants, we don't yet have, in some cases, even the ability to detect them, much less a standard and treatment to treat them. So, you know, that's going to continue to be a problem that we always have. We're always finding new chemicals that we need to be you know, setting standards for treating for, and that's true of, you know, wherever you get your drinking water. So basically everything we put down the drain and into the soil is going to come back and bite us eventually. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the state water board tracks and monitors these different industries and emerging contaminants? Yeah. So for each type of activity, we identify what are the potential contaminants from that activity and then develop monitoring requirements and in some cases kind of regional or ambient monitoring programs. In addition to those, we will have emerging contaminants where we're just starting to learn about them we have investigations to identify where we're starting to see them, what might sources be. And that's where we are with PFAS. We are doing a lot of sampling, requiring sampling from a lot of facilities that are at high risk or drinking water systems that might be near those facilities. But we're still in kind of an investigation mode of trying to understand where they're coming from, what are safe levels, and doing that monitoring. For most contaminants, though, we know, for example, potential contaminants from agriculture. We require monitoring for those contaminants in our regulatory program. So agriculture needs to monitor for nitrates and nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. You know, that is really what fertilizer is. We do try to support use of compost and more organic uses of fertilizer. But I will say that even organic sources of fertilizer have nitrate. And whenever you have fertilizer and you're irrigating, some of that is going beyond the root zone where plants can take it up and into our groundwater. And so we require testing both in groundwater and in surface water for kind of runoff from fertilizer kind of nutrient contaminants, as well as things like pesticides or salts for contaminants that we know are likely coming from agriculture. For things like oil and gas, there's a few different types of oil and gas activities. And so depending on the activities, we do require monitoring for different things. For fracking, because they're adding specific chemicals, we require testing for those chemicals. For other kinds of oil and gas activity, whenever they pump up oil, they pump up a lot of water with it too. And once they separate the oil out, that water that has been pumped up with the oil kind of wastewater, we call production water, that then is either put into ponds or injected really deep back into the kind of layers where it came from. And so in both of those circumstances, we also require monitoring and have regulatory requirements 
historically there wasn't as much protection from that kind of activity. And so we're playing catch up in, in many areas to, you know, address where there's oil and gas production that still might be impacting water. So for example, where there's ponds from that produced water, those are areas where we're not just monitoring, but we're, we're putting requirements and ultimately requiring some to be moved or shut down. Okay. So say if I lived in an area where I know they're pumping for oil and they're fracking, I could call up my local groundwater authority and they could give me data on that. Yeah. So that's one where the regional water board oversees that and they can give you data on that. I will say also for all of these things, you can contact the regional board or the state board. We also have just a complaint hotline. So if you're concerned about activity, you can reach out and issue a complaint or ask questions and we can make sure that somebody follows up. There's also kind of a general EPA, California Environmental Protection Agency line that I can also share. If you're looking for any of those resources, they can be found in the description of this episode on our website, westcoastwaterjustice.org. Okay, so we're already talking about groundwater and we've talked on the podcast some about Sigma, just a little bit. So maybe you can tell us more about that. and. What's going on with our groundwater? Because I've heard it's getting pretty low. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I before I was on the board, I was working with communities like East Porterville and individual households that ran out of water entirely in the last drought because of groundwater depletion. And that was a big driver for why Sigma was passed, why we finally, as a state, required regulation, at least to some degree, to get to sustainable groundwater management. And the way that it's structured is we allow locals to develop groundwater management plans. They have a 20-year period to achieve sustainability. In addition to that 20-year period, though, they also have to meet milestones. They have to show progress. They have to provide annual updates. So we don't have to wait until the end of the 20 years to see or intervene if something's failing. I think that's important to remember because a lot of times we think, uh, it's going to take 20 years to even start to see results. And that's really not how Sigma at least was intended and is structured. So basically what it does is it requires creation of these local sustainable groundwater agencies that have to come up with a plan. They have to submit that plan to the Department of Water Resources and really all of the high priority basins that needed to do that in this first round submitted those. But 12 of those were found to be incomplete, which is kind of a opportunity before they're found to be inadequate for the groundwater sustainability agencies to correct issues. So most of the plans, at least in the San Joaquin Valley and and in 12 basins across the state, needed to do more work on what they submitted. Now, they had 180 days to submit their revised plans. Then Department of Water Resources will look at whether they're adequate or inadequate. Are they adequate to realistically get to that sustainability within 20 years and avoid things like subsidence, communities running dry, things like that? If those plans are found to be inadequate, then it comes to us at the water board to intervene at the state level. Now, if they can get their plans back on track, we can give it back to them to manage. But in the meantime, until they have an adequate plan, it's on us to step in and provide that backstop. These local agencies are required to track groundwater extractions, how much is being pumped, and then report that annually to Department of Water Resources. How they do that depends. So some agencies are requiring really high precision groundwater extraction data. They don't have to provide that individual level groundwater pumping data 
to the state. They just report kind of compiled for their region. And what they report to the state is publicly available and are public records. But you don't necessarily get access to individual pumping records if you are going to try and see exactly who is pumping how much. Okay. So we'd see as a community how much is being pumped, but not the biggest users. What we see is in a basin, how are we doing in terms of achieving the milestone set to get us to that sustainable level within 20 years? So you see the the progress or lack of progress being made. I will say it's challenging because at the beginning of this 20-year period, we're having one of the worst droughts on record, you know, and seeing our climate really shift more permanently. How do we know if the groundwater is sustainable if climate change is getting more serious at the same time? I mean, in dry years, people pump more groundwater because there's less surface water to use. And so what these plans are doing is saying, okay, there's now a limit on that. And we have about 20 years to kind of rebalance things and ensure that those limits are going to get us to a sustainable place, even in this new hydrology. And so those plans are going to have to continue to adapt. You know, they'll have this overall plan, but then they have to do annual reports and see if their milestones are on track to achieve that sustainability. If they're not, they're going to have to do even more drastic demand management, so require even less pumping. And at the same time, I think every GSA or groundwater sustainability agency is also looking at how can we capture water when there are these really wet periods and look at stormwater and and flood water and figure out how to capture that to recharge the groundwater when there are those wet periods. We know we're going to have more extremes. There's going to be really wet periods and longer, drier, dry periods. And so both controlling how much water is pumped, but also trying to capture the water when it's wet, I would say are the main strategies that local sustainability agencies are using to try to get to that goal of sustainability. Are there any examples you can give us of cities or, you know, basins? So there's a lot of examples. In rural areas, for example, one of the things they've started doing is diverting water when there's big storms to agricultural land and just flooding fields because that's permeable land that's getting into the groundwater and is sort of a quick way to do that. In more urban areas, they usually construct groundwater recharge basins. And those are areas where there's the right soils to get water absorbed into groundwater quickly. So there's a lot of work going on to identify where there's the optimal locations for those kind of recharge basins, making sure they're not paved over and used for something else and instead trying to establish those for for recharge. In urban areas, they've been doing this for a while and you'll see this a lot of times there'll be a park or a soccer field, or there'll be, you know, an area that has been restored with green space, really as both a stormwater management, so it doesn't flood areas, but also really trying to quickly capture that water and get it into the ground to recharge water. Places like LA have been doing this for a long time. There, the groundwater's already really highly adjudicated. So they know exactly who is pumping how much. It's highly controlled. There are limits on everyone. And they're also calculating and actively developing projects to recharge that groundwater, try to clean up the groundwater that's contaminated. So it's really managed as a highly regulated system And there's other areas where that's the case too. But I I know a lot of the LA region has been doing this for a long time. So to switch gears a little bit, but it still ties in, I'm wondering how can the state water board determine accurate limits for the state water project and the Central Valley project? 
diversions if we don't know how much senior water rights are diverting, especially if a lot of that is reported in historical records. I think the first thing to talk about is what data we have. So right now, every water right that we permit or people that claim a water right for either senior water rights holders or what we call riparian water users, all of those diverters or users of surface water need to report to the state water board each year. And that data is challenging currently in a lot of different ways. It's reported 18 months later. (laughs) It has a number of kind of data quality problems, in part because we have really old software that doesn't allow for automatically flagging things like if you are using, you know, say, gallons instead of acre feet or you misplace a decimal point. So there's a lot of cleanup that needs to be done. And it's really hard to access. Technically, it's accessible to the public, but it takes a very high degree of user knowledge to actually use any of that. We've also got more than 7 million paper records. That's where we have most of our water rights information that's just in papers in our offices. (laughs) So you'd have to come to the water rights file room in Sacramento and kind of make a a physical in-person appointment to see any of those. And, you know, there's also been problems with just certain things are reported on on one schedule, other things are reported on another schedule, so it's very hard to make things match up. There's a lot of challenges with this, and we're making some progress. Finally, last year, the administration and the, the legislature provided funding to kind of update and modernize our water rights management system, so we're digitizing those 7 million paper records. <laughs> It still will take a year or two before that is getting to where we need to go. But at least we're starting to address that. We also have been able to improve the reporting requirements. Now there's recent legislation that requires everything to get on the same schedule and also requires reports to come in in four months rather than 18 months after water has been used. I will say in the drought, we passed through our emergency regulations and curtailments on places like the Bay Delta watershed. So with our emergency regulations, we went farther than what otherwise is required. And at least in the Bay Delta, we require large diverters to report a month in advance what they're proposing to divert. So that allows us then to, again, set limits. We have a methodology around calculating water availability because we have that data on demand and what people are using. That's needed to really, in practice, make limits on diversions workable. We have to know how much people have a right to divert, are planning to actually divert, and then how much water is available in order to really administer the water right system and put limits on who has a right to take water out and how much. But really, we have that only right now when we're in this emergency. That's because when we're in a drought emergency, there's not enough water to go around. So we have to have this kind of more detailed, proactive data in order to figure out who has rights to the limited water that's there. How is that enforced? So there's a few different reporting and enforcement options. You know, certainly water users have to report. There also are gauges in terms of water flow where we can see how much water is in the river. And there's also satellite data that we're using to help investigate where there's concerns about people not reporting diversions. We will go out and do investigations. And, you know, I I will say, especially in the drought, if somebody has been using water and irrigating when 
they weren't supposed to. Usually you can see that. <laughs> it's uh, If you've got a really green field and your only water source is the river and you weren't supposed to take any out, it's pretty obvious that you did. But yeah, mostly what we've found is we're doing a much better job of communicating with people about doing reports. We weren't getting a lot of compliance with reporting prior to the drought. And I think we now are getting a lot more data coming in than we've ever gotten before. That's a glimmer of hope. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, overall, I would say there's always a silver lining to crises. And In this drought, we're doing things we've never done before, and we're finally upgrading these systems. You know, it's not where it needs to be yet. And I think there's lots of additional improvements in our water rights administration system and and really in our water rights system in general. But at least there's a lot more focus and momentum to try to get those improvements in place quickly especially on the data side, so that we can make our system a little more workable. You know, I I guess I'd also say there's still some really big things to do that take a lot of resources and time that we're working on, but are really slow. And that includes establishing things like in-stream flow protections, you know, numerically how much water has to be kept in a stream or an ecosystem to meet public trust requirements. It makes it really hard for us to to really make sure that that's built into the water rights system and that people are limiting their water use to protect that if we don't have the numeric amount that needs to be kept in the river. That is a whole process. Unfortunately, it takes a lot longer to kind of permanently establish that. But I will say what we've seen is in the drought, we've done that in some watersheds on an emergency basis. And I think those are those are all important steps in the right direction to getting kind of more permanent frameworks in place to manage all these different needs and water users and public trust benefits. I really appreciate you going into all that. And I'm sure we'd love to have a follow-up interview with you at some point to learn even more, but I know you're super busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I am always happy to talk and, you know, there's so much that we have a responsibility around at the state water board. And, you know, certainly we're just one piece of the water system in California, but we need to make sure that we're being effective and good partners to support the work that's going on locally. I think at the end of the day, it's really what's happening on the local level that that makes a difference. But we need to make sure that as a state, we're doing our part to support that, providing resources, providing regulatory frameworks, administering water rights and, and the systems that we have so that it can enable those solutions on the local level. And really, I think that's best done when we have communities that are most impacted part of the decision-making and part of advising, you know, our programs working, how can we do them better And one of my favorite things about the Water Board is that we have public meetings twice a month. We have a very transparent process. And then I think each of us on the Water Board really try to make ourselves personally accessible as well to folks and groups that can and want to meet to help us understand how to make decisions. Thank you, Laurel. Is there somewhere people can go to find out about the public meetings? Yes, we have all the agendas and information on how to participate on our website. And we do still have a remote participation option. So while meetings are in Sacramento, you can also log in over Zoom and participate remotely as well. It's www.waterboards with an S ca.gov and you can get upcoming agendas you can also watch past meetings you can get any of our plans or permits more information on each of our programs on funding opportunities on enforcement on water quality protection all of that on our website well thank you so much for all the work you do to protect california's water the public trust and Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this interview. We really appreciate it. 
Thanks. That was Laurel Firestone from the State Water Resources Control Board. Thank you so much, Laurel. And if you're looking for any of those links, please check out the description on this episode on our website, westcoastwaterjustice.org. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Save California Salmon or any entities mentioned. You've been listening to West Coast Water Justice, produced by me, Natalie Kilmer. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. The music is from the album Now That's What I Call Surf by Tony Bald, Adam Anigias, and Danny Snyder. Danny Snyder.